Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. You'd like to be self-sufficient, but the space you have available is tighter than your budget. If this sounds familiar, the Homegrown City Life Series was created just for you. Our authors bring country living to the city with big ideas for small spaces. Topics include cheese making, fermenting, gardening, composting, and more. Everything you need to create your own homegrown city life. Buy three or more books in the series and receive a 35% discount. Find out more at newsociety.com. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every two weeks, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. Though this series on regenerative farming has covered a ton of different farming models, land management techniques, food production methods, and design methods, one of the glaring absences in the perspective that I've included have been that of women, and I'm well aware of it. I did reach out to a lot of women farmers in an attempt to set up interviews, but many of them either didn't want to be interviewed or were simply too busy to be able to schedule a call. Now, I can imagine with all of this nonsense and instability around the pandemic, it must be really challenging for all farmers in the last six months. I was, however, finally able to get a hold of Lisa Kiverest, one of my favorite authors of homesteading skills and small-scale farming. Now, she's the author of The Farmstead Chef, Rural Renaissance, Ecopreneuring, Homemade for Sale, and the book that will be the center of our interview today, Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. She's also the host of the podcast, In Her Boots, which focuses on interviews with and about modern women farmers, which I've been a fan of for over a year now, and I highly recommend to anyone interested in farm stories and general advice for farming in the USA. Now, in her extensive work helping to build support for women in farming and to create a community network of their peers that they can rely on, Lisa has helped to highlight the stories and experiences around the immeasurable contributions from women in agriculture and set stronger foundations for their continued success into the future. In this interview, Lisa helps me to understand the complex history of women farmers in the USA and the obstacles that they've had to overcome in the past, as well as those that are still in their way. She also explains the unique talents and perspectives that they bring to this fast-changing sector, along with the growing support network that they're building together. 
Now, I've been a big fan of Lisa's books for a while, and her podcast is a really valuable resource too. But this book, Soil Sisters, really opened my eyes to the blind spots that I've had and the farming industry at large has had to the essential role that women have played in advancing and strengthening farming through some of America's toughest times. But rather than fumbling through trying to explain it myself, I'll hand it over now to Lisa. Hey, Lisa, thanks so much for making the time to be with me today. I'm glad we finally caught each other. This has been in the works for a little while. How are you doing? I am good. Thanks for the invitation, Oliver. How are things going in Wisconsin? There have been a lot of shakeups in the economy and the way things operate in business. How are you adapting and how does life look like on the ground over there? Yeah, well, literally on the ground here on our farm in Serendipity, it's it's kind of like it always is in June in particular of abundance and growing and harvesting and all of that. It's an interesting time to be on rural homesteads because there's very, uh, I, I find it very comforting <laughs> and hopeful to have hands in the soil and have a lot of our seasonal patterns kick in mm. while the rest of the world is going through so much and processing so much. It's a very, um, it's a space that has always drawn me in as home and I'm appreciating that in new ways this season. So yeah, yeah. But our community here in Wisconsin of farmers and our community committed to sustainability, it's different. You know, we haven't seen each other, which is a big part of our lifestyle around here of potlucks and gatherings and getting together. So that's been a definite change. So I think we've all been hunkering down more on our land this season and planting more and doing more because we're here and we can and we figure wherever things land, people always need food. They also always need that. So we can always do more in that sense. Certainly. And it seems like you found that, the, you know, the working with the land and seeing the seasons change is like a constant an anchor that gives a little bit of stability to all the craziness that's going around. I mean, I used to live and work on farms. And now that I'm in an apartment, I really am finding that my connection with the garden that we have has been the consistent kind of comforting aspect as so many things are changing right now. Oh, you are so right. I never really fully appreciated it until now in that there's there's just a lot of hope in those routines <laughs> and we know that some there are some things that are constant and again being june right now here it's just our it's our month of joy and solstice mm. fun and everything is green and beautiful and the, the weeds haven't kicked in and the dryness of late summer hasn't kicked in and everything is abundant so it's a it, it's a good time <laughs> it's a good time to again be be rooted on the farm but it's definitely one for the history books. For sure. Now, with all this talk about the work that you're doing on the ground, I know you wear a lot of different hats from running an award-winning bed and breakfast on your small farm to working and coordinating various nonprofits. You also have a wonderful podcast called In Her Boots, and you work to amplify voices of women farmers. But I know that this isn't how you grew up. Tell me about how your passion for farming began and how you sort of made a transition into rural living. Sure, that's been quite the journey as life takes us. So yeah, I uh, did not grow up with a farming background, family, anything like that. Both 
myself and my husband, John Ivankoe, grew up in the suburbs. I was outside of Chicago. He was outside of Detroit. So our story started in perhaps very um, typical roots in the sense of suburban kids growing up. I, I'm a, a first generation American. My parents immigrated and I grew up in a, a, a family that was very dedicated to food, if you will. You know, we we loved gatherings. We loved cooking. We had small gardens, but not the farming side. But that said, where my parents were from, immigrating from the Baltics. My mom's from Latvia. My dad's from Estonia. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one generation removed, as I say, from fully self-sufficient homesteading because when my parents grew up in the 20s and 30s uh, back in the, the homeland, it was very common. And everybody had full gardens, you know, and was, were growing wheat in their front lawn and had pigs in their backyard. It was just a way of life that I think very much ingrained in me of that sense of self-sufficiency and creative frugality and all of that. But that said, my life track was very typical in that I went to school, I went to college, and what do you do after college? You get a job, right? So that's what I was tracked to do and worked in Chicago in the corporate advertising world fairly briefly. It was probably a one or two years in, and that's where John and I met, that we might have had our early midlife crises in our mid-20s, but realizing this is just not for us and not having a clear picture of what was next, but doing what a lot of folks do of just getting out of the city. And we did typical camping, biking stuff, heading over the border north to Wisconsin from Chicago, as a lot of folks do. And something really started to spark for us there of being in a rural environment, being in a place with space, wanting more independence uh, from the job that we found very draining to wanting to contribute more to the earth and our, our world and to be responsible and be able to act in a way that was treading lighter on our world. So that's where some seeds were planted, but it was very, very new for me, Oliver. Again, I, I, my, my, my own family's still somewhat digesting of where I ended up, but for me, it was a very natural fit and very much a journey. So anyway, that sparked the, hmm, could we live somewhere else? And this was back in the mid nineties where things like the internet, hard to believe were really just percolating as, Oh, look at this. But even then, you could tell that this was going to be a game changer of the ability to work from wherever you wanted to be and have a lot more freedom. So we started thinking, well, let's give it a try. And that was, too, a little bit at the time where uh, we, could, we could pay off our student loans relatively uh, efficiently in a couple of years so we could start debt-free and keep that mantra of how can we live as lean as possible and live closer to the land? And that's what brought us in 1996 now to our five acres here in Southwest Wisconsin of in serendipity. So we are not on a lot of land, but we've learned you can do a lot on whatever you have. And our journey has been a little different from the start in that, we, well, uh, well, one thing is obvious, but worth saying is we didn't come with farming experience, which I don't know if I necessarily recommend. But in our case, we were so frustrated with those jobs. And we took some time off to travel, as I know you would recommend, of getting out and seeing things around the world and came back um, committed to, to the rural lifestyle. And knowing that we didn't have 
the farming experience or that we could just start pumping out those bountiful fresh tomatoes. We knew we needed to be diversified. So our goal has always been from the farmstead to generate our income on farm, but not necessarily all through farming, which has kept us diversified and creative in that sense, both like starting the bed and breakfast from the start to doing writing, to working, as you mentioned, with other nonprofits and things. So it's a pretty diversified income portfolio, but under that umbrella of living very lean and generating our own food, generating our own power. We run on renewable energy. So minimizing expenses as much as possible so that we have that freedom to uh, pursue what we like to do. Fantastic. It's such, a, it's such a wonderful story of making that transition and finding success within it while still maintaining that connection to, you know, the commerce and, you know, using the education that you got from the city, it's not one or the other. You don't have to abandon everything to go into this type of lifestyle. And moving on from there, I kind of want to focus now on the work that you have done to help to highlight and promote and empower women in the farming sector specifically. And I'm sure that this was somewhat developed as you had to learn so many of these things from scratch and didn't have as many resources and probably found that it's a much more difficult journey for women, particularly getting into this. But before we go into the work that you've done specifically, could you give us a very brief history of women in agriculture in the U.S. that you sort of outline in your book, Soil Sisters? Sure. So it's almost funny when we talk about it in that, this whole idea of women farming and being almost a, a trendy thing now where women have been growing food and feeding their families and communities since the dawn of agriculture, right? This has been going on for hundreds, thousands of years of women producing food. But even in the United States, even if we just look at the last hundred years, the, the short story is women have not been recognized politically or economically for our contributions to the farm and to the food production system. And that's what has, in a good way, rapidly changed, particularly in the last couple of decades. But we need to appreciate, and I appreciate the question, because we need to appreciate our history of where we came from to understand where we need to go, right? So even if we look at the last hundred years in the United States, if you start like in the, the World War I era, where women were self-organizing of the, the Women's Land Army. And these were women who were basically stepping in to take the jobs that men had left to fight in World War One and, and go overseas and leave. But these were women stepping into the fields, stepping into the canneries, the fisheries, and taking on those jobs quite successfully, I might add. And that was really one of the first movements of women organizing around agriculture in the States. And then it's kind of as history goes, right? Two steps forward, one step back, three steps back. It's a, it's a dance. And what happened after World War I is that women, it became very patriotic to, to give those jobs back to the men who had left. So it was kind of a, a moment, but it proved that women can organize around these things. And it actually inspired in World War II, the Victory Garden movement of, in this case, the government organizing an initiative to raise more food at home so that we would be more self-sufficient. And that was very much inspired by the Women's Land Army and the fact that we can do these things and that we can grow and raise more things in our, 
our home front and talk about homeland security there, right? So yeah, at the peak of World War II and the Victory Garden movement, that we were raising over 40% of our domestic produce in home gardens. And you know, talk about, again, security with that. And interesting, prior to World War II, during the Great Depression here in the 1930s, um, in like the mid 30s, it, it was estimated that like the majority of a farm's income was coming from eggs and uh, produce at local markets. Now, arguably, that was coming from the women raising these things. And that doesn't even include things like crafts or baked goods or other items. So one could even argue that it was the women and what they were doing economically that got the rural areas in our country through the Depression because of what we were doing on the farm homestead. So back to World War II and post-World War II and what happens in a nutshell is we get bigger is better, right? And oh, we were growing more things during the Victory Garden era during World War II, but that was that was sacrifice, or at least that's how the media and the government build it, right? And now we have processed food and industrialized agriculture and bigger, better, cheaper. And there we went. <laughs> and here we are as a result of that. But women lost a place in agriculture as things got bigger and more mechanized and none of the mechanical equipment being designed for a woman's body ergonomically. And we can talk more about that. But, but also to interest. We liked having our hands in the soil. We liked having that lifestyle that wasn't reflected in the big combine. So women took on different roles in many farming families. It might have been more bookkeeping or other, but still were not economically recognized for that work. And then in the 70s, in a nutshell, things started to change. Uh, women started to be um, uh, counted economically from a policy perspective. And this has to do with things that finally changed, for example, that if a woman was widowed or divorced in a farm, that she would have property rights. And those things didn't really exist till that time, which people still find shocking. It wasn't that long ago. But once women started being recognized and validated economically for their farming contributions, and too, once the census started counting women, uh, because again, historically, in the census of agriculture, which is a super important census that basically goes out every five years to farms in the United States that tracks who's farming, how many farmers, what are we growing, et cetera. And it's that data from the ag census that builds the farm bill and builds policy and importantly allocates dollars. But there was one place on the ag census for farm owner, and that typically went to the male head of household. So that started changing. And I give the USDA and the, the ag census folks credit to recognize it's not just women we're talking about, but it is recognizing that we have increasing diversity in our agricultural workforce and our agricultural system and our ag census and importantly our policy and our funding needs to reflect that. So the last ag census that just came out, I think there were seven spots for primary owner of a farm. And that reflects a lot of things, you know, farm families, siblings farming together and recognizing people for their work. So, so all of that adds up to today where you see women as one of the fastest growing groups of new farmers. Women are still classified as um, what's called socially disadvantaged farmer group. Sometimes that's called historically underserved by the USDA. And that has to do with as a result of this history I've been describing of discrimination, particularly in farm loans through the FSA, through the Farm Service Agency, 
where women have been denied loans based on gender. So there are um, different ways to string that that we can talk about for new women farmers who are looking for loans, that there might be some opportunity there. But I'm hoping that uh, because of all the good work being done by women farmers today and folks like yourself spreading these stories, that eventually we won't have that status and we will be fully economically and politically present in the driving of our agricultural system here, but we still have work to do. <laughs> Certainly. Well, that was really well explained, Lisa, but uh, tell me where we're at now and some of the obstacles that still exist, even though women, like you said, are one of the fastest growing groups in farming. Certainly it's not as easy and things still are not necessarily designed for their success right now. You're exactly right. And a lot of the things that women find as barriers are not female exclusive. They have to do with all sorts of new farmer groups and particularly uh, minority farmer groups that don't have access to capital, for example, for land access, that sort of thing. But specific to women is, I mentioned briefly before, is the ergonomic issue and the fact that tools, machinery are not designed for a woman's body and you know we all know we all know basic biology of yeah there's difference between male and female but there are body differences and this is not a question of whatever right wrong strong weak it's just we're different women carry their strength for example in their lower half of their body than their upper half whereas men are the opposite tend to be stronger on their upper half versus lower women tend to be shorter than men and those things add up to a huge issue when it comes to farming on the equipment side, both from a safety perspective, because if you're operating particularly mechanized equipment or any equipment really, but it's not safe, right? And you see farm injuries and you see the potential for that risk much higher for women who are basically trying to wear a pair of shoes that don't fit them. Um, and then also too, you, you look at the long-term health of staying active in farming. And for all of us, our most important tool is ourselves, our body. And if we aren't being able to operate ergonomically, safely and positively, if things are too short, too long, whatever, not built for us, then that adds up as well. So you've, you see a lot of creativity as the result of that, of women adapting tools. You see new startups who are trying to help with this too. Uh, one of the women I write about in the Soul Sisters books is uh, Liz Bresdinger and Ann Adams who started Green Heron Tools out in Pennsylvania. And to, to backtrack, they actually originally started a farm, the Green Heron Farm, and uh, one of their sons at the time was a chef in Philadelphia, and this was pre the bustling local food movement of today, and he couldn't find access to fresh produce. And any mom would know if your son needs something, you want to help him, right? So she started a farm, and those two friends together started Green Heron Farms, and they were, they were loving the farming side, and they were in their 50s at the time. So... Uh, it wasn't a physical issue, but they could just, that they couldn't, couldn't handle it. They were physically fit, but they could just see that these tools weren't right for them and that they were feeling aches and pains that could grow into bigger issues. So they started thinking, all right, well, we probably are not the only women farmers with these problems. Why don't we find all the tools designed for women farmers and we'll put them in a catalog so other people can access them. Great idea. They did their research, except they found there was literally nothing, <laughs> nothing that was designed ergonomically for women. Now, granted, there was some uh, you know, gardening tools that were 
cute or feminine <laughs> right, or painted right. pink. And that is now what we're talking no, about that's, here. That's more so condescending they, than anything. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so they pivoted and said, wait a minute, there's something here. And started Green Hair and Tools, where they have been developing in a much larger research capacity, working with Penn State and doing focus groups with farmers and various ergonomic tests to find out what we want and find out how they can design it. And not surprisingly, what we really didn't want was like a tractor or large equipment designed for women. We want to have our hands in the soil. And the thing we really wanted was a shovel that would work. And they came out with a couple of years now of, uh, it's called the Her Shovel, which is ergonomically designed for women. And it comes in three sizes because we come in different sizes. And things like they found in their research that when a male uses a shovel, he will tend to dig straight down, whereas a woman will tend to dig at an angle. Again, it's not a right, wrong thing. It's just differences. But the shovel is designed for that versus trying to mm. fight it the other way. So an interesting, uh, we're all about serendipity here. Our farm is in serendipity and sometimes often in our life journey, right? I I think you would attest to this, Oliver, with all the places you've been and things you've done that you just have to sometimes get out there and you don't know what you will encounter until you start. And so they named their farm Green Heron Farm because when they first saw the land, there was a pond and there was a green heron and it was this beautiful romantic farm moment, right? Mm -hmm. But it turns out that a green heron, the bird, is the, one of the few birds that actually uses its beak as a tool. So talk about foreshadowing there, wow. right? They had the perfect name for this pivot. But I, I share that because when we talk about these challenges of women farmers or any farmer group, they really are opportunities for people to start up new businesses, to take charge, to solve problems. And if there's problems that you as a farmer encounter yourself, hands down, there will be other farmers having that same barrier. And it may lead you in another direction like the green hair and tools women, but it may be something on a much bigger level that can help sustain our sustainability movement. Yes, certainly. And I mean, making, <laughs> making the barriers that much easier to, to overcome and offering tools and information is going to probably be the make or break factor for so many people who, like you said, are just starting in on this. And that brings me back to your book, Soil Sisters, which from my impression of reading it is really a mentorship in written form for women who are either getting started or getting better established in agriculture. But this wasn't around when you got started. So where did you turn to when you were getting established yourself and who helped you to build the knowledge that you have now? Oh, you, you nailed it there with the focus of the book, Oliver. I appreciate that because it very much is mentorship and collaboration. And you're right too, that when I started, there weren't resources period, uh, for, well, beginning homesteaders, beginning farmers, the internet was just coming of age. Things are so much more ripe and delicious on that front now, but it was talking to other people. And in my case, talking to other women and that collaboration that really helped both from a pure informational perspective. How do I do Y? How do I battle X pest in the growing fields? But also support that you can do this and that there are a lot of ways to do this. And most importantly, 
people, other women have your back when you're doing it. So it was because that we have been lacking these resources. And when you look particularly at women in the sustainable ag and organic community, the resources are even uh, smaller that really target how we want to approach things and really looking at things holistically and from that diversification aspect. So that, so my own experience was exactly what stemmed into the Soul Sisters book of talking to and connecting with other women. And that is what eventually evolved to the book of over a hundred women contributing their ideas and resources and inspiration. So, and the research has shown that women that's our preferred learning style is learning from each other, which goes in direct contrast with traditional education where you have a classroom and somebody typically male is at the front of the classroom lecturing on how this is done, right? That's not how we work best as women. And in my work in women in agriculture and in the programming I've been involved with, we very much try to celebrate that. and do things differently so you won't see unless i can help it or, or re rearranging chairs all the time you know because the the lecture classroom format doesn't work we like circles we like learning circles and trying to always approach agricultural education for women from the lens that we are all on this journey together and whether this is the first ag event you've ever attended or you've been farming 20 plus years we have something to learn from each other so really trying to foster that spirit has been a focus of my writing and work and very much in the Soul Sisters book and something I am personally very grateful for because I have met so many amazing women along the way. And when I was telling that brief synopsis of the history of women in ag, I, I, we, we, it's easy to flash forward to today, but there have been so many amazing women who started 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when the organic community was such a renegade offshoot group and the ideas of CSAs and community supported agriculture were just being birthed that were true pioneers from my perspective who really uh, laid the groundwork for where we are today where just things are much more, I wouldn't even say accepted, but celebrated for women in agriculture and it's really honoring those pioneers. And there's several stories in the book, uh, one of which Denise O'Brien is a wonderful friend and mentor of mine. She was one of these, again, organic women pioneers farming with her husband in Western Iowa for years. And it was back in the 80s when that farming crisis was happening and they were going to local meetings and organizing and talking to their neighbors. And she very much saw a gender split where the men were in one side of the room and the women were in the other side of the room and the conversations were different and the conversations she heard amongst the women were, hey, you know, I kind of saw this coming and maybe we should have diversified. Maybe we should have done some other things and, and, and. And more importantly, Denise saw that those voices of these women were not at the table. They were not at the decision-making table. <clears throat> and how could she help? She felt very compelled to change that. So here she was experience but really stepping to that leadership plate and she started the women food and ag network or WeFan, which is still going strong today and is really a national network of women both farmers but educators activists women committed to sustainable and organic agriculture so i share that story too because 
if we see, it's one thing to see practical tools and things that we need. Yes, we need those, but it's also the bigger, broader issues for women to organize around and step up more to the leadership plate, be it starting your own organization like Denise, or fortunately, even here in my local farmhood, we increasingly see women with agricultural backgrounds running for office. And that's a huge game changer mm. to get more of these voices at the true decision-making table. That's super exciting. And I'm so glad to hear that this is starting to gain momentum. And um, it, if, if I could, I want to kind of note off a little excerpt from your book, which, which hit me personally because it so succinctly kind of describes where we're at right now. And you write that there are nearly 1 million farmers today representing about 30% of all farms being women and together you add up over 12 billion in annual sales of farm products. Your numbers have nearly doubled in the last 25 years. My question from this would be, what do you think right now is attracting more women into farming as a livelihood and lifestyle at this very unique moment in history when it's so crucial for us to reconnect with the land and our food systems? Right. It, it's interesting because I think, well, there's... there's it kind of depends on what lens you're coming from. I see women who have grown up on farms and were often the first to want to leave and might've had careers in completely other things, but then are drawn back and bring that perspective of wanting to reinvent and recreate and steward the land they grew up on. And then you have women like myself who did not grow up in that environment, but really feel this kinship as an adult to the soil, to the food system, to that self-sufficiency. I mean, I joke about it, but I think too, there were just a lot of women like me who grew up with Little House on the Prairie and those images and that idea of pioneering in the homestead that really struck in our heart that got glossed over as adulthood came in, right? And you needed a real job and a real career and, and, and. But much of my lifestyle <laughs> goes back to those things I was drawn to as a child. So there's definitely that too. Interestingly, and this fascinates me is, and I write about it in Soul Sisters and call it women who are heading into their encore career. <clears throat> and these are women midlife who are starting farms. Now it may be returning to a family farm, but often it's not. And that is super powerful. The Encore Farm name came up uh, thanks to a friend letting me borrow it of uh, Paula Foreman. She's a kind of almost urban, peri-urban farmer outside the Twin Cities. But she literally woke up on her 50th day a couple of years ago and said, you know, if I'm ever going to start this farm and follow this dream, I have to do it now or it's going to be too late. And so she started her farm at Encore Farm for that reason, as an Encore career. Mm. But women starting these farms bring life experience, and it could be a variety of backgrounds, or from corporate marketing to healthcare to others. So they're bringing a new, different skill set to agriculture that can really, I think, help things evolve and definitely can help their business startup smartly because yeah it's 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 going to be different when you're 50 versus 25 and also too if you see yourself farming into your senior years in different capacities what does that mean so paul is a great example so but then again uh, let me share we were talking about serendipity you need to keep that balance of the practical right and the research and reality with the heart and the soul and what just draws you so 
she, as we those beautiful, juicy, delicious, glossy seed catalogs in the winter, right? You know, in December, January, and they mm-hmm. get us all buzzed about spring. So, so when she had made this decision, she got her catalog from Seed Savers. That's a nonprofit in Iowa that does a lot in seed saving, and they have a lot of heirloom bean uh, seeds and things. And on the cover of the catalog she received were these heirloom beans, dried beans. And she just found a picture, but she's like, sense too. I can do dried beans. I worked in the restaurant circuit for a lot of chefs in the Twin Cities areas who really appreciate local food, but the barrier we have is the winter, right? And not having access. So having a non-perishable product would really go over well, she thought. And it's something that she could handle on her own as a single solo farmer and could uh, do without a whole lot of mechanization, etc. And thing that other people do She's been quite successful at that. So it's interesting to see like, the life getting things based on a patchwork of ideas and experiences, but taking things in new, in new ways. So to your question, there's, there's a wide diversity of women uh, and their stories they're bringing to agriculture, but we really come together and hence the Soil Sisters name of a commitment to land stewardship, and healthy soil, and a commitment to each other and championing diversity in our food system, be it women, increasing the platform from women from different communities, from communities of color, from urban, rural, all of us having a say in where things are going, and importantly, having a say in our local communities, food access. I got to say, Lisa, that's one of the aspects of your work that I most admire is your efforts at creating such a close-knit community and such a supportive community of women farmers all around the country, but especially in your region of the upper Midwest. And it's something that I definitely want to reach out to you again in the future to kind of help to coach and guide me on as I try and create these resources to do the same thing for my local area. But you also put out some great resources on helping to coach women through taking on more active leadership roles in their community, on their farms. And can you tell me a little bit about your resources for amplifying our voices toolkit for women farmers that you've helped to produce? Oh, sure. That's a fairly new project we just launched, uh, Renewing the Countryside, that is a Minnesota-based nonprofit I work a lot with that does a variety of cool activities and educational outreach under the rural revitalization umbrella of keeping vibrancy in our rural areas and building on that. And we were finding that we want, well, we wanted to see and we needed to see more women farmers with a sustainable and organic perspective in the media, sharing these stories and sharing them authentically, and that that would be a good driver for public awareness and eventually policy change. So with some uh, support and gratitude from Organic Valley Family of Farms, which is a cooperative of organic farmers, the largest organic cooperative in the country based here in Wisconsin, we created this free toolkit that you can find on the Renewing the Countryside site for women farmers to talk to the media. And it goes into specifics um, based on like what type of media outlet you're talking to, a podcast, for example, versus a newspaper reporter versus video, and how to crystallize your story 
and communicated both effectively and authentically. And this is an area too that women can really shine in because we have these stories and we have this passionate connection to our farm. And how can we help each other amplify that more? And that's what that is one specific toolkit on the media outreach front. And we find that too, when once women start sharing these stories more, anything from talking to a reporter to writing an op-ed for their local paper or other, that we become engaged more and we see the need for more leadership. And that's where, for example, um, here on my local level, well, one thing about women running for office, and this is not specific to women in ag, it's just women in general, is we find that women need to be asked. And specifically, women need to be asked seven times on average to take on an elected official position, whereas men don't. And it's just, it is a gender difference that we need to, well, understand, but also help uh, illustrate with women because a guy will be most likely to just say, well, you know, I'm going to run for county board. Done. Whereas a woman needs to be asked and that women win as much proportionally as men, statistically as men, when it comes to these elected races, but we just don't run as much. And that's why you still see the significantly lower representation of women, be it from rural county boards to Congress, right? So uh, what happened to me locally, I think is a good microcosm of what's hopefully happening throughout the country where we as women are identifying leadership opportunities and encouraging each other to run. So uh, this was a couple of years ago now, and we have a, a local group of women, our Soil Sisters group here that meets regularly now for close to 10 years for potlucks, but a lot of information and ideas and inspiration gets exchanged, you know, over good food and wine, right? So we had our, it was right around the holidays and I was actually hosting at our farm and not surprisingly, sometimes we get together, we lament over the lack of local leadership in our community. And we were doing that. And the next day, my local county extension agent, Kara, called me because she's part of our, our group here and said, hey, you know, I heard there's an opening in this township in our county for county board. They're not running. Do we know anybody? And we literally got out a map and the list of people who attended the last night and said, hmm, who lives there? And there was one woman Betty Gerdehorps, who lived in that township, and I had met her recently, but said, hey, you know, I'm going to call her up and just see. And I, I remember that conversation well, because I was like, look, I'm, you're probably going to say no. You have every reason to say no. But we, I just wanted to say that we all think you'd be great to run for county board, and we'll support you and be behind you and throw a party, win or lose, and would love to have you do this. And, you know, she didn't say no. She said, hmm, I had been actually thinking about that. And it turns out, her family, her, her dad had been on county board for years. She came from roots that were quite connected, and she was recently retired from the veterinarian school at the university and was at a place where she could do something like that. And she ended up running and winning. And since then, we've had now three women in our local women farming community who have successfully run for county board. And that's a game changer because we are bringing up issues of water quality and land management and sustainability and land stewardship that we're not at the table or at least not as regular and definitely not as loud. So things start at that local level and they really start by encouraging each other. And even if somebody, it's just not for a variety of reasons on their radar right now, when we see opportunities like that to pass them along because they plant seeds and maybe things happen a couple years down the line. But yeah, yeah. So that's a really, uh, 
something that we can all do of encouraging other people in our community and particularly that women women connection to run for office the other thing too as an aside oh sorry go ahead i just want to say is sometimes sometimes when the uh democracy doesn't work we need to take things into other hands and that happened uh, in a different topic but related of we here in the United States have what are typically called cottage food laws. They're state specific laws that are increasing in number. That's what we write about in our home mailed for sale book, but in a nutshell, allow you to use your home kitchen for producing non-hazardous food for public sale. And this is a huge game changer, especially for farms and homesteads, because now we can legally sell things like our high acid canned items like pickles and jams and in most states, baked goods, breads, muffins, that sort of thing. Uh, in my state of Wisconsin, we had a law that allowed the high acid canned items, but not baked goods, which was odd in that I ran this bed and breakfast. I don't need a commercial kitchen for a bed and breakfast. I could serve you, Oliver, when you come visit my pumpkin chocolate chip muffins, but I couldn't sell you the same muffins. It didn't make sense. So we worked for years to try to get the cookie bill passed as legislation to allow the sale of home baked goods in our state and hit political barriers and people with power and money and influence who basically said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. And rather than say, okay, or wait until new leadership came into power, we went down a couple doors. As we know here, we have not just one branch of government legislative and executive, but judicial. And myself and two other female farmer friends, Chris Marion and Della Enns, successfully sued the state of Wisconsin to have the ban on the sale of home baked goods lifted. So now we have that in our state of both farms, but anybody who can sell their non-hazardous baked goods. So in those cases, leadership can often come from when we encounter these hurdles, or in our case, a, a solid brick wall of influence <laughs> that, you know, you can topple. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, Oliver, if we as, as farmers encounter barriers, we are, I would put money on it, not the only ones who are suffering from that, you know, and the fact that I couldn't sell my muffins and my friends couldn't sell their bread. There were people throughout the state who were hitting that same thing. So it's that coming together that uh, can really instigate some change and is definite opportunities for us on the leadership front. It doesn't always have to be elected office. There are lots of ways to start shifting things. I'm so glad you brought up all of those stories. And those are some really inspiring examples of how people can make real change in their communities through tenacity and through working with their, their, I guess, their local communities to gain support and figure out really what's needed in those areas and what people want. And I think this is coming at a very important moment because we find ourselves in an election year. And like you mentioned earlier, the census started counting women farmers only back in 1978. And there's a real importance for getting proper representation through the census. And this translates into uh, getting proper funding for things that count people that have otherwise been invisible to these types of metrics. Do you have a message that you'd like to give for the importance of participating in these processes and what can happen when better representation is gained? Sure, because part of the struggle is for us small scale farmers, homesteaders, we don't fit into the box like ever, right? And that can be 
frustrating and challenging. So even the ag census, for example, is not written for us. It's written for the majority. To be represented does take effort. And that's the message we want to share in that we need to figure out how to navigate those things. And when we, when we feel like the square pegs in the round holes, we need to both voice that, but also keep trying to navigate the system. And that's how things change. I mean, I live in a very conventional agriculture dairy area. I mean, yes, we have some growing numbers of organic farms and we have a vibrant network of women farmers, but we're still small proportionately. And we definitely are underrepresented when it comes to how our USDA office handles us, right? Or if we walk in the door of what programs are available. And we found, for example, that sometimes we as small scale farmers need to educate ourselves about the programs before we even walk into these doors because there's so much, there's so many and the USDA is so massive, right? That even when new opportunities come up or there's some new conservation programs that we need to keep on the forefront of those. So it's, it's a con- the other thing too is to have our voices represented on that policy note, which is often on the federal level, both the farm bill, like you mentioned, but the farm bill is being renegotiated and appropriated every year. There's things we need to fight for funding. In the states, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, or NSAC, is a fabulous group based in D.C. that represents groups like Moses and others throughout the country on Capitol Hill when it comes to these issues. And they're a great group to connect with, sign up for their e-news, because they keep their finger on the policy front and willing up for funding. The BFRDP, the Beginning Farmer Rancher Development Program, which really only recently came to full funding for beginning farmers. You'd think we would have had that already, but we don't. And we have to fight for that all the time. But when those sort of things come up in the committees in Congress, levels that they will keep you posted. And if you're who to call, whether it's your senator or somebody else to voice those. I'm always amazed by Oliver with those kind of calls. You think like one call doesn't matter. You think they need hundreds, thousands of calls. And it's, it's like 10. <laughs> if wow. your elected official gets 10 calls on an issue that we need more funding for the value-added producer grant, they will notice. So it doesn't, and especially calls coming from farmers and these programs we're talking about, it's super important to share your story when you have benefited from something. So with that Amplifier Voices Toolkit, for example, of helping women share their stories with the media. Yeah, you know, if there's NRCS programs that you've been involved with that have helped bring conservation prairie land, share those. Or SARE, the Sustainable Agriculture Research Education, has a lot of programs and funding for farms in the sustainable agriculture community share those stories because that's what's going to get these things more on the forefront. But we need to we need to keep our pulse on those bigger funding pictures because it's it's a constant fight and it's, it's just a, a battle and that's the way it is but it it, it rolls slowly <laughs> do happen slowly but individual voices make a huge difference that's so good to hear and it gives a lot of hope that in these times of transitions by being persistent and really taking the opportunity to have your voice heard that things can start to change for the positive even if they look bleak at the moment 
And before we wrap up here, because this series is focused on regenerative agriculture, you know, perhaps you might call it sustainable agriculture, ecological, it goes by a lot of names, but it seems like women have a particular role in bringing the health of the ecology back into the farms and that they have a much greater tendency to be connected to the holistic health of their land. Can you talk about that from your experience? Sure. And it's, it's most definitely not to say that men don't, but it, it's celebrating the differences in gender and diversity in people and what are some of our strengths and how can those strengths help all of us move forward. And yeah, you know, I think there's a reason we called her Mother Nature to start, right? Is sure. there is a natural tendency of women to mother, to care, to nurture, and to see any mom with kids. It's the same sort of thing. It's, it's a multifaceted process. And it's also seeing things 10 steps ahead. It's not the immediate of, I need to get as much yield from this field as I can. It's where are things going to be next year? Where's my kid going to be in five years? And so that really helps. And one thing, a specific example that I find fascinating is I see a lot of interest and absorption of women farmers when it comes to things like cover crops, you know, which are, I wouldn't say increasing in popularity. They've, they've, they've hoped they've been around all the time, but at least in more traditional agriculture spheres have not. And this idea of, literally nurturing your soil and literally planting to benefit it for the long term, it comes supernaturally to women farmers. And that's something that, as an example, is a tangible to use as an educational tool. I mean, especially in a place like I am, where you're probably surrounded by conventional male farmers and you are growing these cover crops, you know, and your yield is high and your soil is healthy. And gosh, golly, you know, they can even be cheaper than chemical and pesticide (laughs) additives. And that can engage in conversation with other farmers outside of our organic world that can be super powerful. So uh, it's, it's both the doing, but it's also the sharing. And And it's interesting, too, because conservation can have some bottom lines financially that can help drive those conversations to people who may not be immediately as sold to the sustainability side, but but cash talks, and that can help, too. Sure, sure. Undoubtedly. Well, along those lines, can you tell our listeners where they can find out more information? I know we just started to scratch the surface of all of the fantastic resources that are out there for new farmers and women farmers, especially in the United States. And you have a huge body of work yourself. I have been kind of starting to work through your literature from the farmstead chef, rural renaissance and ecopreneuring homemade for sale. You've got some fantastic resources out there. Can you point our listeners in the direction to find out more? You bet you. Um, So you mentioned that John and I wrote and then the Soul Sisters book are probably best at our main farm webpage in serendipity I-N-N serendipity.com and you can find a host of links out there I had mentioned a couple non-profit doing the countryside 
has a growing women in egg program that has the amplifier toolkit and this soil sisters project i mentioned locally here that birthed we are angling to get some soil sisters chapters and other things happening throughout throughout the midwest and pilot this year and hopefully further on so um that is a good resource. And then I have had the honor of working with Moses, the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Service now for over 10 years on our In Her Boots project. That's our women farmer training. So mosesorganic.org. You'll see a variety of organic resources and then the In Her Boots project where we host various field days. We have this In Her Boots podcast and do land conservation training for women as well. So those are a couple that... I've been directly involved with, but yeah, there's, it's a good time to jump into this as a woman because there's just a number of growing resources. And again, that collaborative support, be it, be it figurative online, but also literal with, you'd be amazed at who might be in your own neighborhood already to connect with. Fantastic. And before we go, I want to commend you for all the incredible work that you've done in advancing these issues. And I'm so glad that you've made it available to sell home-baked goods in Wisconsin again. What a fantastic gift to that state that came out of that struggle. <laughs> and Hey, um, comfort cookies. <laughs> I can't wait. You know, I'll tell you what, the next time I go back and visit my brothers in the Twin Cities, I'll see if I can't make a, a trip out to your area and see the farmstead. And we also have, you know, cheese and beer for you in Wisconsin. We'll take care of you. I mean, you can't forget that stuff. That's, that's what I remember from that area. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time, Lisa. I really hope that we can catch up again sometime soon. There's so much more that we can explore from all the rest of your experience and from your writings. And so until then, uh, thanks for making time and we'll talk again soon. You bet. Thank you, Oliver. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform. And I'll catch you on next week's show.